this is Ukrainian spaces, uh, um, and uh, we basically a project set up by Val and me to amplify Ukrainian voices and to decolonize some Ukraine conversations. And thank you so much because this re-recording is possible through and thanks to the support of our listeners because Ukrainian spaces is 100% independent, a listener-supported and volunteer effort. And if you want to join it, uh, please check out our Patreon space, uh, which is called Ukrainian Spaces Together, and become our sponsor. Uh, and this is not a charity. Our sponsors uh, get a lot of extra cool bonus stuff, like advanced announcements, uh, transcripts, but most importantly, you get the opportunity to ask your questions and get a first row seat in the, during our broadcasts through Patreon space uh, page or directly. So, um, without you know any other delay, um, Nadia, hey, we're very happy to have you back again. Thanks. Um, yeah, I'm really, really glad to be uh, to uh, speak to you, and you're doing such a great job. I'm really happy to be part of it. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, uh, we have a ground rule for all Ukrainian spaces. Our featured Ukrainians have an opportunity to always introduce themselves first without us uh, pushing any labels or, um, you know, forcing people into any boxes. So please tell everyone else uh, who you are, where you come from, and what your life has been like since the genocide started. So uh, my name is Nadia Dobranska. I'm 34 years old and in peaceful times I have been working as a project manager at Human Rights Center's MENA and I was managing projects related to political prisoners of uh, Ukraine in the occupied Crimea and the Russian Federation and also and projects related to promoting sanctions against Russians and their proxies in the occupied Crimea and Donbass for uh, grave human rights violations. Um, I also have a degree in, in Irish studies from Queen's University Belfast and I have this connection with Ireland. So this was my past life and then since the 24th of February, well I'm in, in, from Kiev originally and I, uh, since the Russian invasion started, like the full-scale invasion, uh, I evacuated my parents and some other family members to Ireland and yeah it's a bit life is upside down and we're based in cork at the moment uh, so i'm minding the family and also i keep working for human rights centers mina as uh, now i'm where i'm monitoring enforced disappearances and arbitrary abductions of ukrainians in the occupied territory by russians as in, in for example in kherson region and in zaporizhia region and you were also evacuated your cat as well right am i right i did I did. Yeah. It was a very big endeavor and adventure, and I think that it cost me much more than it cost me to evacuate my family altogether. But it was worth it because it's my brother's cat. My brother was at the moment in the territorial defense near Kiev, so it, I was really trying to, to do my best for the family. Yeah, it's uh, it's always very illustrative, and a lot of people, a lot of foreigners, a lot of Ukrainians for that. that Ukrainians never leave behind their pets or try not to. And this is uh, as part of their families as everyone else. And uh, 
Uh, yeah, Nadia, and uh, one of the important things that I want everyone else to know how I came about your work is actually coming from um, this question and this frustration that we often hear from our colleagues and mainstream media when we confront them that there is a lack of representation of Ukrainians. And they always say, well, you know, it's very hard to find anyone Ukrainian talking, speaking about Ukraine uh, in English. And then I always remember you because you're Ukrainian who has been reporting in Gallic for Ireland. So I always kind of uh, think of you if there is a person who speaks in Irish language to Ireland, then definitely we can find Ukrainians who speak English and German and other more popular language in plenty to be represented on mainstream Western mainstream media. But tell us how it actually even happened that you are able to uh, tell the stories in Gaelic. Gaelic. Um, right. Yes. This is this is quite unusual. But you'd be surprised that I'm not even the only Ukrainian who speaks Irish. There is also another uh, man. I I I lost the program on the on, on radio and Aguiltechta with him. I think that he lives in Germany, so there are even two of us. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've been learning Irish for almost four years now, and uh, I always had this love for for the Irish language since I was a teenager. I was introduced to it by um, an in, um, English uh, tutor that I was doing a language course with when I was in my. 15 maybe or 16, he was from the north of England and he introduced me to Irish and Scottish traditional music and I heard Irish and I definitely wanted to learn it at some point. So yeah, but then over, over the course of the years, I couldn't really find the way to learn it. So I, I picked, uh, took up Duolingo in 2018 and started learning Irish and it went really well. And then I did two years when I was doing my master's at Queen's University Belfast. I did two uh, terms in, in the language center uh, on the false road. And then for a few years now, I've been learning it with a tutor. So I'm, yeah, I didn't know that I had enough Irish when the war, well, when, when the invasion started um, and the Irish speaking media discovered through my Twitter that I spoke some Irish and they offered me to comment uh, on the, situation before the invasion in Irish and I agreed we did some a few pre-recorded talks and it worked out really well and I've been speaking to uh, Radio Nagueltachta uh, and Radio Falci and other Irish speaking media and on to the Irish speaking television TG Cahar for yeah for for a good few months and um, yeah I'm surprised myself to be honest. That sounds absolutely incredible. And uh, I wanted to ask you, since you've been working so closely in this, in obviously in Ireland and Irish and seeing a lot of the conversations around Ukraine that have been happening, what has been most frustrating for you, both in terms of the way that people, maybe just even conversations, not necessarily media, have been revolving around Ukraine? What, are, what have been like some of the biggest frustrations you've had to deal with and like debunk certain myths in Ireland and in general in the West? Um, so I would there in Ireland there are two media spheres. There is an English speaking media sphere, and there is an Irish speaking media sphere. And on one hand, 
like in the English speaking uh, sphere, I'm I've most of the time what I was finding quite that as something that I wasn't used to, I had to speak as a, you know, like our girl on the ground. I'm a professional, I have two masters, I have political outlook, I'm I work, I, I qualify as political expert, but I've been asked questions. Are you worried? Are you scared? How did it go? How, well, um, all these, uh, I was asked about emotions and not just because I'm Ukrainian, but also I was thinking that I am capable of more. And often my the questions that I was asked were very limiting me to a very specific role uh, to come to say basically that I'm scared and worried. And I mean, I know this is how media, like West, especially Western media works, but it was quite annoying, uh, even though I knew that this is, you know, like this is the, the this is the game and I have to play it, I suppose. I had to use, uh, go on with the flow and say what I have to say, but I felt that I was capable of more. And, but in the Irish speaking sphere, I, I somehow combine both roles and I've been I've been commenting as a political commentator and as a refugee or as an evacuee as I was evacuating my family as I was giving many like on the 24th of February I I uh, got um, I think 13 or 12 requests and I gave I think eight or nine uh, interviews uh, to mostly Irish media and I think I lost somehow it lost in communication like three of them so I was was looking back at it, it was so strange um because I was evacuating the family from Kiev and doing this along the way Well, it, unfortunately, it happens all the time, and I'm, I'm super grateful for you to bring it up because we talk about this uh, a lot, uh, the way Ukrainian voices are often treated with this a bit colonial haze, especially for Western, especially for English language media. And it's uh, very interesting that you point out the difference that you felt when it comes to you know English language coverage, Irish language coverage. And... Um, there is this colonialism that is present there with how they treat us and how they just uh, uh, basically give us space for emotions and then they move on to something more serious analysis done by other Western people. But uh, in general, because when you uh, have this a very unique bridge between uh, experience of Ireland under British colonialism, so-called white-on-white colonialism, and very, in a way, similar experience that Ukraine has uh, with Russian colonialism. Um, is it something you often think or channel or discuss also with the uh, um, Irish uh, audience uh, about those similarities and colonial experiences that both of our countries had? Well, this is a big question about Irish uh, as, a, as a former British colony and Ukraine as a former Russian colony. And while I'm mostly speaking these days, I sometimes talk to, uh, have been giving, uh, talking to, on historical podcasts. And um, yeah, but mostly I, I, I haven't been asking like on very broad, like popular media to, to discuss these issues. But basically Ireland has like, this massive uh, body of scholarship 
that uh, was accumulated even before the post-colonial discourse, like post-colonial studies emerged. Um, so they've been discussing, like histor historians have been discussing whether Ireland does qualify as a colony of, of the United Kingdom in the first place because of uh, Ireland's proximity to the metropole, to England. And this is something that we see in the discussions as to Ukraine as part of the Russian Empire, that how can we qualify as a colony to uh, if we are basically next to Russia and we are bordering with each other and um, Ukraine wasn't exactly extract it was an extractive colony as we would think of, colon of colonialism as an oversee uh, exploited and subjugated nation and uh, usually uh, which is far away which is remote um, across the sea from the metropole and also there is also always or in many cases racial difference involved so uh, in, in Irish history, there's this discourse that Ireland is an outlier. And I was writing an essay about this uh, during my master's and looking, well, my question was that maybe Ireland is an outlier compared to the countries of the South, global South and, um, and Africa. But on the other hand, looking at Europe, Ireland is far from being the outlier because basically Ukraine is very, it's very similar. That we were conquered about well quite closely Ireland was conquered by the uh, by the uh, the British rulers in 15 uh, 16th century also Ukraine joined uh, the Union with uh, with uh, with Moscow in 17th century and over time uh, Ukraine lost uh, its privilege according to the treaty with with Moscow over up into the eighteenth uh, end of the eighteenth century, and similarly, Ireland, like coincidentally, the union with the United Kingdom was established in um, at the turn of the eighteenth century as well, and yeah. uh, we were definitely far from being extractive colonies. So, I would rather argue that there is a problem with the definition of colonialism nowadays that yes. doesn't include um, countries like Ireland or Ukraine or Poland or Czech Republic, like lots and lots and lots of landlocked former empires. And I know that um, especially in, in public discussions on social media, uh, like uh, theories, well, popular users, uh, popular West Wing uh, Twitter users are surprised that there was the word empire in the Russian empire. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is, I also find it weird because when we're often, as Ukrainians, we're denied a space in the, in conversations about colonialism by uh, some folks just um, saying that, well, you're, you know, white people, there is no such thing as white on white colonialism. And I find it extremely weird because once you remove the issue with uh, skin color, everything else is quite similar i mean i'm not a historian myself i'm not a I'm not a huge uh, uh, you know researcher or scholar uh, knowing all of it but my journey of discovering uh, russian colonialism and framing it as russian colonialism started exactly by comparing 
uh, the information and the stories and the reporting from places like Ireland or Scotland, where they were talking about colonialism, how it manifested. And uh, then I find it really bizarre that there is still such a big blind spot. I mean, in your personal experience, like, um, why do you think there is a, this blind spot? Is it because of race or um, because we're talking about, you know, uh, Western countries that were uh, colonizers themselves and it's very uncomfortable for them to admit that there is uh, some sort of colonization still happening? I mean, how do you as a Ukrainian explain it to yourself? Well, I, I think that the, this is, yeah, as a complex issue, I, I see, uh, was returning to Ireland, that in the 19th century, like uh, Victorian era, the United uh, Kingdom and British Empire, uh, the Irish were racialized. So there, there was this debate about the Celtic race and the Anglo-Saxon race, even though both were white. And uh, the fact that, well, but still like all the, the racial theory is building up on uh, uh, on the previous era when racial differences were constructed and enforced. So in, in this way, um, Ireland was subjected to a certain racialized treatment, which of course in, in 21st century, we're a bit, you know, it's, it sounds baffling, like how could have been Irish seen as a different race, but you know, history knows precedents like that. And my biggest, well, I I would say that the, the biggest reason why the colonialism of the Russian colonialism is falling out completely, like um, from uh, the colonial theory, is just simply the Iron Curtain. That's my my take. That while post-colonial theory was emerging in the second half of the twentieth century, everything that was going on in the Soviet Union was just was behind the Iron Curtain, and the news that were filtering out into the world were controlled by this by the communist party and it was used to well accordingly to build the image that they wanted to because there was be no international you know independent international reporting of the soviet union so the image that was depicted by the by the communist rule of the soviet union was this anti-imperialist anti-colonialist view they were providing a lot of help to the uh, to the uh, well, what at that time was known as third world country countries um, uh, in, back in the day. So there was this big image of the Soviet Union being uh, definitely not colonial, <laughs> which was exactly the opposite of true. And there is also this uh, one of the scholars of post-colonial theory wrote that there is this prejudice in, in uh, post-colonial studies towards uh, the sea. So if the empire was... Mm maritime then that's definitely colonialism if this was a landlocked empire or like continental empire as in as uh the russian empire then all of a sudden there's this gap and which is very easy to bridge in fairness and yeah i hope that over time it will be bridged because colonial theory that doesn't basically doesn't encapsulate uh, europe and asia as continents because of that yeah it doesn't meet, you know, is uh, is no good. I mean, what's the point? It's ridiculous. Do yeah. Do we apply it only to certain continents? Well, that's grand, but maybe we should then call it not post-colonial theory, but maybe post-colonial theory 
pertinent to certain continents. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I uh, we I often compare, so to say, notes on you know on um, race, racist treatment of Ukrainians and Eastern Europeans with uh, my friends of color. Um, some of uh, you know, for example, uh, uh, Tyrell Star is going to be uh, one of our featured uh, honorary Ukrainians on the show. But we often compare, and when you look, uh, when you list the experiences that you ex- uh, that you had as a Ukrainian and your racist treatment by Russians, everything is literally almost the same apart from skin color. So, of course, this is not identical experience for people of color that uh, face a much harsher discrimination because it's so easy to spot them, right, and oppress them. But for Ukrainians living within the Russian colonial empire, there were different level of racism, not based on skin color, but on any other things. Uh, You know, the way we look, the way we talk, but it uh, definitely was and feels like racism for us, at least within these, uh, you know, that environment. And that's the thing, you know, like, as long as we acknowledge and understand the intersectionality of every single issue and topic that we talk about and the fact that different things affect different different people differently because of who they are and so on and so forth, I think we're totally in our right to claim some of these concepts and in explaining the way that we have been treated, because also our region is not this black box of, like, nothing you know like it's not just russia versus the us it's not this i don't know dichotomy between two massive powers there's actually a lot of history that has been happening um in between not just to ukraine right we keep talking about it all the time maxim you keep talking about it all the time you know the soviet union was also not a also the russian empire not like a place of like homogenous kind of place with one type of person one type of religion and so on and so forth and i do think that not being able to describe things the way that we are describing today just means that people miss that as a point in explaining what's going on today Not not to say that the Russian colonial empire is not racist. Of course it is. It's rooted in white supremacy. And maybe Ukrainians as survivors of Russian colonial rule might be, well, predominantly white. But for example, people in Central Asia or indigenous nations of, of uh, that are still under Russian colonial rule um, survive through genocides and is still to the date extremely, extremely racist treatment. But uh, Nadia, I wanted to ask you about one parallel that you also mentioned very often that we have similar with Ireland is uh, Irish Great Famine and Ukrainian Genocide Holodomor, which was uh, Moscow made artificial famine to exterminate Ukrainians. Um, I know that you always kind of, you often bring that parallel. uh, Is it something that hits home in Ireland also? Um, quite close and how do people react to it and whether you find, I mean, 
what kind of similarities you find between the two? Um, so the, the Irish famine took place in the 1840s and Ukrainian famine uh, in 1932, 33, and to a certain extent, there, there are certain parallels, like in the way that the famine devastated the population of the nation. Like Ireland, before the famine, there were 8 million Irish people on the island, and uh, they lost four, one, 1 million died, and three emigrated. And Ireland never psychologically recovered. Ever, they still haven't recovered the population of of pre-famine Ireland, and it's been more well more than 150 years since the famine, and it's quite it's it's, it's quite striking. And I think at the moment, we'll, uh, on the uh, on the island, with not taking consideration Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, there are still like around like, less than six million on the island. And it's really like uh, the famine really changed because this uh, in Ireland, because it affected the poorest uh, the Irish uh, farmers who were struck by the, um, uh, the infection, potato infection that really destroyed the crops and was and the, the poorest the, uh, Irish farmers were relied on, on, on potatoes for sustenance and they didn't who didn't have enough money to buy other food that was at the time was exported out of Ireland. So there were relief measures. So it was really, really a huge tragedy. And well, it, well for now, uh, Ireland don't, the historians don't argue that this was genocide by uh, per, by intentional, but, but effectively it was huge negligence of the British rulers uh, that was justified by the liberal uh, economic uh, mode as in free market and the market will regulate itself. So in this way, it's sli it's slightly different. It's it's different from Ukrainian famine, where food was literally extracted from the farmers and they were left they were definitely uh, intentionally left to die uh, by by the, the Stalin's rule. But the, this the the sense that the state in basically was guilty is is similar. And for for the Irish, the famine is still is still a painful thing that is ringing still close to home and still painful. Like for example, I find I find it really striking that the Irish eat very little fish, and supposedly historians of uh, food. Well, there is an argument that before the famine they ate more of the fish, but somehow there was this watershed that didn't change since the famine. And for Ukrainian, of course, for Ukrainian farmers, the, the, the famine was absolutely devastating. Like it basically destroyed Ukrainian village as we knew it, and the backbone of Ukrainian nationalism and the like popular nationalism and popular resistance that so many, like four million Ukrainians died. So um, the thing is you, that I want to. Yeah, hmm? and you were talking about the, which I find fascinating, the similarities between how Irish people talk about the famine and Ukrainian and Ukrainians' families uh, as well? Yes, uh, so I, I was really exploring the comparing memory of um, memory of the Irish famine and memory of uh, the Ukrainian famine. And uh, it was really interesting because the, the Irish famine um, happened so many years so many years ago and so there was there's this big collection of um, 
of papers in the National Folklore uh, Archive when children of the third generation, third generation from the famine were interviewing their grandparents about what they heard from their parents about the famine. So if you're following me. And so I, I'm the third generation from the Ukrainian famine and I was interviewing my own grandparents uh, about the famine. So I, I was really struck by things that the similarities in the, in the memory, for example, so when you ask, um, when you're talking to the Irish person about the famine, they would often say, they probably will say, well, it wasn't as bad in my village or in my area than it was in the others. And I definitely heard that in Ukraine many times. Or, for example, nobody died in fi my family. That's what an Irish person would say. And I definitely know this from my family and from some people, from other people that uh, I've heard interviewing their families, like that um, somehow, so probably we are two children of survivors, obviously. But on the other hand, there could be a lot of shame involved in, in how the information about the dead family members during the famine uh, has been passed on through the generations. Because basically, well, in Ireland, famine was associated with poverty, and uh, in well, in Ukraine, it well, it there is there wasn't this strong connection. But then, being becoming a victim of such a huge, dreadful, massive event, it 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 leaves this trace of of shame. And uh, there's also the thing that the uh, devastation of the Irish language was also associated with the famine. And uh, Irish people after the famine, because the, the farmers were often, and poor would often be the Irish speakers, and ever since they stopped teaching their children Irish so that they get better opportunities in their lives. And I'm just really thinking, what to what extent was this the part of the plan of, you know, Stalin's plans of destroying Ukrainian farmers was, you know, was this, how far can we uh, go in arguing that destroying Ukrainian farmers to a lot, to a big extent entail destruction of the Ukrainian nation, Ukrainian language and Ukrainian culture. At the Irish experience, I'm thinking that maybe, you know, it could have been intended to I come from family that survived through all of the war in southern Ukraine, and southern and eastern Ukraine were one of the heavily hit by genocide in uh, of all of the war. And to the date, I mean, you realize that the majority of those villages they were all speaking Ukrainian, um, and the impact that it had on the whole region that is now predominantly Russian speaking. Um, there is even research kind of trying to bring parallels how that region became predominantly Russian speaking. And that red line goes through that genocide more often. And yeah, and even in our family, we were never able to extract that information from our grand grandparents. It was like I was too young for investigative journalism, but it was in sort of investigative journalism because you kind of learn in the school that every fourth or uh, fifth Ukrainian died and you try to compare it with the notes inside your family and you ask your grand-grandmother like, like, but what happened? Who died and how you were affected? And they were very often secretive or just dismissive, trying not to talk about it. And only later you learn 
that basically they spend most of their lives trying to hide that information because, I mean, unlike in Ireland, being associated with Holodomor uh, as a survivor could, could give you uh, hard times just succeeding in life in totalitarian state. Uh, and this is something they really wanted to avoid. Yeah, um, I wanted to, I know we're sort of running out of time, but I wanted to ask you a question that we ask everyone. And I'm also so glad that you mentioned the tr sort of transition of trauma between generations that it all passes down and makes us who we are. And, you know, in some instances even um, influences the way that events happen in, in the next iteration of, you know, flare ups of violence and so on and so forth. But um, I wanted to ask you what, does it mean to be Ukrainian for you? And it doesn't have to be connected, obviously, to trauma, but anything you feel like sharing with us? Right, that's a very challenging question, to be honest. Um, so, on one hand, I'm, I sort of have this sort this strong link to Ireland is that is really nourishing me at the moment. I mean, I had it for a few years, well, good few years now. But uh, I th I think that in during the war, like uh, I I can rely on this sense of like home away from home in Ireland because of the connection that I've been building over the years, and this is something that really supports me as a Ukrainian being far from home, but sort of among friends that I've not just you know like not just people specific people that are my friends, but because I've been studying Irish history and culture and language, and I, I find find myself that, well, sort of embedded in the fabric of Ireland to, well, that's how I like to think about it. And yeah, back in Ukraine, after I came back from doing my studies in Ireland, I had this bit of sense of being a stranger um, at home. And in Ireland, I was a bit of, um, at home in a strange uh, place. And as to being Ukrainian, I find that um, I, yeah, just am who I am. I was basically indoctrinated in this broad Ukrainian nationalism, like old, old school, like not the one that where you have to hate other nations, but I was, my father really brought me up thinking about Ukraine, that it's it's important that we have a nation, that we have our language, we have our culture, and probably I, I, I never had the courage to to have the, um, to fight for it. But I'm I'm defending it in in the ways that I can, being as a Ukrainian speak as a Ukrainian person speaking to the world in ways that I can about Ukraine and about its value as a as as a nation. And I'm really proud of being Ukraine, part of Ukrainian community where I think that we've developed such a broad political um, and inclusive concept of Ukrainians since the war of, and even since Maidan, since 2014, 2013, 2014 and since the Russian, especially since the full-scale invasion three months ago that it doesn't matter what's your background if you want to be Ukrainian, so, so be it, go on it doesn't matter yeah. what, what your beliefs are or what your skin color or the, or the languages you speak. If you want to be Ukrainian, yeah, you're welcome. And this is really 
I'm really inspired by by this fact and uh, that the the old school nationalism merged and uh, got uh, molded into this modern day uh, modern day nationalism, if you, put it, if you like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you so much. This is powerful and very true, uh, probably for absolutely everyone who has been on the show and everybody always say that uh, mentioned set of values. And some, I mean, I really super 100% relate to what you're saying. Um, as someone who is not ethnically Ukrainian, who was born in Ukraine, but for many, many years had no uh, connection to the country or identity until I I connected <laughs> and it was more of a choice uh, because of set of values, because Ukraine is about values first, not this uh, 19th century bullshit about blood and land and what are, what not. Um, so yeah, thank you so much. I mean, um, as we say to everyone who comes from Ukrainian spaces, you're free to come back and claim it at any point with any topic you'd like to talk about, to um, explain, to vent about, this is your space. And we're so extra super grateful that you spent um, additional time re-recording this. Uh, so thank you for that. For, for uh, that as well. Yes, thank you so much. I'm really honored and proud to be a part of, well, to have joined the community of Ukrainian spaces and really appreciate her work. And I just can't believe that we have to explain all this to all these people, you know. <laughs> yeah. I'm really delighted that, yeah, you sure. know, that you build this community where you are doing this so well. And yes, I'll be really happy to be back at some point to contribute to our uh, boosting Ukrainian voices. <laughs> Please do. Um, Okay, thank you so much uh, for everyone else listening. Uh, please, after you finished listening, uh, please rate this, comment this, because it does help. And algorithms on Spotify and Apple Podcasts work exactly like that. So you, by doing that, you will help Ukrainian voices to trend. And also don't forget that you, if you like all of this, um, you can support us through Patreon, which is called Ukrainian Spaces Together. And our sponsors get a lot of extra bonus stuff there. But most importantly, you have uh, this opportunity to uh, ask questions uh, to our guests and leave comments. We always love that. And uh, after this show is over, go on Twitter, on Instagram, use the hashtag Ukrainian Spaces to claim it, especially if you're Ukrainian not only to suggest us topics and Ukrainians to feature, but if you're Ukrainian and you want to share some uh, experience or your perspective, please also do that. We always love to quote that. Meanwhile, that's it. Uh, apart from one thing, uh, and it is Slava Ukraini. Hello, I'm Slava. Hello, I'm Slava. Bye, guys. <laughs>